Hello, kindred spirits. Welcome back to Kindred Spirits Book Club, where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Reagan Duffy, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kelly Gurner. Hi, kindred spirits. Kelly, how are you? Are you starting to feel the autumn vibes in your part of town? Kind of. I would say so. The weather has cooled down a touch. As many of our listeners know, Reagan and I both live in LA, so we don't get true fall weather, especially not in September or October. But I will say it has cooled down quite a bit. I've noticed the humidity has gone away, and I think there's a certain crispness in the air. I think that's true. And for those of you who are not Los Angeles natives, you might not know this, but LA has got like four different climates happening within city limits at any one time. So while Kelly and I are both in LA, we live in very different parts of town. So I live in the foothills of a mountains. I always say that it is always 10 degrees more extreme where I live. So it's either 10 degrees colder or 10 degrees hotter. (laughs) And I live really close to the beach. So we tend to be more moderate and mild. We don't get as super high highs, but we also don't get like the really cold coal because we always have like the ocean that is balancing us out. Yeah. And you guys tend to have a little bit more humidity year round and it gets really dry up here in the fall and winter. I live in the part of LA where where people say things like, oh my God, it snowed in LA. It snowed at my house. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Listeners, you should know this about where Kelly lives. When she's talking about the foothills of a mountain, sometimes bears walk down her street. When you see those little videos that go around on Instagram or TikTok of like bears in people's pools. Those are my neighbors. Yeah. That's Kelly's house. Well, and so I keep asking my husband if we can build a pool in our backyard. and Specifically for a bear? Well, and he keeps saying, what about the bears? And I was like, that is a plus. (laughs) (laughs) Not a con. That's a pro. (laughs) I hope that bears come and swim with me. Oh, Reagan, how about you? You feeling fall? Yeah, you know, it was not as super hot of a summer as it has often been. We're definitely feeling the change in temperature. Like, I've busted out my jeans. That's kind of exciting. There you go. But I'm super excited that next weekend you and I get to go to our favorite mountain town for a girls' reading weekend. Yes, I'm so excited. Listeners, if you remember in our anniversary episode, we talked about the little town of Idlewild in the mountains outside of Los Angeles, and we just love it. We have gone many times for long weekends, and we bring a stack of books, and we read, and we eat delicious food, and we talk, and we soak in the beautiful mountain views. It's definitely cooler up in the mountains. I'm hoping maybe we even start seeing some leaves changing color. Well, I think we're early. A few. It's a little early, but we might see some some color. The nights will definitely be a little chillier, so we can have the fires in the fireplace. And yeah. We are also planning to watch the Anne of Avonlea, the sequel to the 1985 miniseries of Anne of Green Gables. So stay tuned in a few weeks for our take on that. We're going to curl up with some apple cider, watch some Anne of Avonlea, and have a fully like fall weekend away. Absolutely. So excited. So let's dive into our episode. As our listeners know, we often talk about Anne's journey through the lens of her three core values, dazzlingly clever, angelically good, and divinely beautiful. So today, let's talk a little bit about how Anne is dazzlingly clever. 
We're going to talk about that specifically in how Anne cheerfully deploys her genius for people to endear herself to the Summerside community and to smooth over the various conflicts that arise over the course of the book. But our kindred spirit of this episode is Catherine Brooke, Anne's misanthropic vice principal at Summerside High School. Catherine fascinates us for many reasons. Out of everyone in Summerside, she takes the longest to warm to Anne, and Anne's efforts to befriend her are pretty heroic. I'm not sure if I would have tried to make Catherine like me as doggedly as Anne does. It's amazing that Anne can win over an entire family of Pringles before she wins over one Catherine Brooke. Oh, I know. Ultimately, we love Catherine's arc from prickly and suspicious to pleasant and hopeful and looking forward to a bright future on her own terms. We also love that Catherine Brooke is yet another example of a woman in the Montgomery verse who is not focused on marriage, courtship, or romance. A central theme of all the Anne books is that there is a place for women outside of traditional roles. Since Anne of Windy Poplars was published out of order, we don't get to hear from Catherine later on in Anne's life. But we sincerely hope that Catherine Brooke gets to live the rest of her life following her bliss. Our quote of this episode is a lovely little bit of nostalgia for Anne fans. Since Windy Poplars was published 28 years after Anne of Green Gables, readers had been falling in love with Anne for close to 30 years. And Maud must have felt that she needed to do a little fan service with this passage. But it's a beautiful one nevertheless. At this point, Anne and Catherine have traveled to Green Gables for Christmas. Davy met them at Bright River with a big two-seated sleigh full of furry robes and a bear hug for Anne. The two girls snuggled down in the back seat. The drive from the station to Green Gables had always been a very pleasant part of Anne's weekend's home. She always recalled her first drive home from Bright River with Matthew. That had been in spring, and this was December, but everything along the road kept saying to her, Do you remember? The snow crisped under the runners. The music of the bells tinkled through the ranks of tall pointed firs, snow-laden. The white way of delight had little festoons of stars tangled in the trees. And on the last hill but one, they saw the great gulf, white and mystical under the moon, but not yet icebound. There's just one spot on this road where I always feel suddenly I'm home, said Anne. It's the top of the next hill where we'll see the lights of Green Gables. I'm just thinking of the supper Marilla will have ready for us. I believe I can smell it here. Oh, it's good, good, good to be home again. We love all those callbacks to those early moments in Anne of Green Gables. Today in Story Club, we are going to talk about the different ways that the folks in Windy Poplars get their way with prickly and difficult people. We know that Anne has always been able to use her charm and warmth to connect with others, even the curmudgeons and the judgmental. We see that from the very beginning of Anne of Green Gables. Anne quickly works through her difficulty with Mrs. Lynde with a flowery apology. She cracks Marilla's no-nonsense shell, and she turns the cranky standoffish Miss Josephine Barry into a hardcore fan. When Anne of Avonlea, she connects with the grumpy Mr. Harrison and forms a lasting friendship with him. She charms countless villagers into becoming supporters of the AVIS. In Windy Poplars, we will see how Anne connects with so many people and uses not just her charm, but her wits and canny reading of other people to meddle and improve the lives around her. And she's not the only one. We'll also get to see how some of the other folks in this book use some roundabout methods to get where they need to go. So let's start with Anne's first obstacle in Summerside, and that's the Pringle family. In Anne of Avonlea, we learned a little bit about small towns with prominent families, because Avonlea is plagued with the obnoxious Pye family and the pompous Sloan family. In Summerside, we learned that the Pringles rule the roost, that half the town is Pringle or half Pringle or Pringle-in-law. 
The Pringles are incredibly insular and clannish, and a slight against one is a slight against all. You know, they kind of remind me of like a mafia family almost, the way they all fall in line. One snaps their fingers and they all hop to. Yeah, maybe we should check out what the family business is. Yeah, right? I don't think we ever know. Anyway, after accepting the principalship of Summerside High School, Anne arrives just before school starts to find a place to live for the next three years. Anne is reasonably confident that she will be able to board with Mrs. Tom Pringle, who has been hosting the various principals of Summerside High for the last 15 years. However, Mrs. Tom Pringle tells Anne she's tired of being bothered with boarders and sends Anne on her way. Sus. Absolutely. Anne and Mrs. Lind, who accompanied her on this errand, supervised her, visited several other houses, and were also turned away. Anne is starting to lose hope when she and Mrs. Lind stop for tea with an old friend of Mrs. Lind, a Mrs. Braddock. Mrs. Braddock suggests that Anne and Mrs. Lind call on the widows in Spooks Lane. And as we know, that ended up working out beautifully. But Mrs. Braddock also gives Anne the scoop on all things Pringle. She tells Anne that the Pringles are known as the royal family in Summerside and that Anne will have to get on their good side early if she hopes to accomplish anything. The Pringles are very close, involved in everyone's business, and will stand shoulder to shoulder in regards to any outsider. Mrs. Braddock also tells Anne that the, quote, two old ladies at Maplehurst were in charge. These would be Miss Ellen and Miss Sarah, the de facto matriarchs of the clan. So going to the mafia theme, I almost picture them as like little Victorian era mafia dons, like <laughs> sitting in the back garden with like all black dresses and peeling oranges or something. Well, Mrs. Braddock does tell Anne that she heard the Pringles were down on Anne as a Pringle cousin of theirs lost the principalship to Anne. And she tells Anne, they'll be smooth as cream to you, but they'll work against you every time. Two weeks into the school year, Anne realized how right Mrs. Braddock was. All the Pringles she encounters are out Outwardly polite, she's invited to supper and the pupils are very well behaved, but Anne quickly realizes that beneath this veneer of civility is a widespread campaign to undermine her. Jen Pringle, whom Anne describes as, quote, a green-eyed bantling who looks as Becky Sharp must have looked at 14. I'm completely obsessed with that depiction and it's shout out to Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Jen Pringle is the ringleader of the Pringle students. Anne suspects Jen is making comic faces behind Anne's back and distracting the other pupils, but she has never caught Jen at it. Jen also says Anne's name in such a way that Miss Shirley always sounds like an insult. To make matters worse, Jen is a brilliant student and has a sense of humor that makes Anne think that they would probably get along beautifully had not Jen decided to hate her. Jen's parents invite Anne to supper, where her father, James Pringle, goes on and on about the importance of discipline, telling Anne that the principal must have a firm hand, be experienced, and preferably be a man. All, of course, a direct slight to Anne, whom he assumes to be soft and inexperienced simply because she's a young woman. Anne wisely plays the Pringles game, saying nothing and looking innocent. She knows she's an experienced teacher who's capable of effective classroom management, and she also knows that James Pringle is a prejudiced blowhard. Anne's other supper with the Pringle family, the Morton Pringle family this time, goes slightly better, but only because Morton Pringle does not listen to a single thing Anne says. Mrs. Stephen Pringle, a mother of one of Anne's students, writes to Anne to tell her that Anne is assigning too much homework for her daughter's delicate constitution. Although it's a very polite letter, Anne detects the poison in it as Mrs. Pringle says sugar sweet that her Millie is a sensitive child who must be understood. The former principal understood Millie, and Mrs. Pringle is sure Anne will too if she tries. 
In a letter to Gilbert, Anne admits that she is sensitive to rejection as it makes her feel like the unloved little girl she was before she came to Green Gables, and she feels hurt by the Pringles' unjust treatment of her. She hasn't done anything to earn their resentment, but she suffers the weight of their rejection all the same. By October of her first year, things with the Pringles have only gotten worse. Anne's Pringle students won't turn in their homework. Anne arrives to class to find her desk upside down or a toy snake in a box on her desk. Jen Pringle arrives late every day with some perfectly watertight excuse delivered politely with an insolent tilt to her mouth. Anne finds a peeled onion in her coat pocket. Gross. And Anne finds a cruel caricature of her drawn on the blackboard. No one confesses, but Anne suspects that Jen is the only student with sufficient artistic skills. Homer Pringle does gymnastics down the aisle of the classroom, and Anne gets a nasty letter from an anonymous source. Anne cannot appeal to the Pringle parents since they are part of the problem. One parent accuses Anne of marking down her child's paper simply because she's a Pringle. Anne is accused of laughing at children's mistakes, although she tells Gilbert that she did giggle when a Pringle child defined a centurion as someone who lived 100 years. And James <laughs> Pringle is going around telling everyone who will listen that Anne has no classroom discipline. And worst of all, someone is circulating a rumor that Anne is a foundling. So the foundling thing is really awful. We know that to the Pringles, family is absolutely everything. And we talked a lot last season about how Victorians could be deeply judgmental when someone's parentage was unknown. And that was one reason why so many in Avonlea were reluctant to accept Anne at first. We also know that Anne's association with the Cuthberts buys Anne some credibility. Recall that Mrs. Gibson credits Anne's excellent tea to Marilla. But if people start seeing Anne as an orphan, she will lose clout. Like, that will harm her professionally and socially. It's all just spiraling beyond Anne's control. In addition to the problems with the kids in school, Anne is also snubbed socially. She isn't invited to parties or to take part in charity functions. And we know from her work on the AVIS that community service is a core value for Anne. She also learns that the minister's wife was going to invite Anne to sing with the choir, but decided not to when she was told that if Anne joined, all the Pringle singers would quit. Anne can't discipline her school, not with Jen as the leader. When Anne holds Jen after class to finish some homework that Jen has not turned in, 10 minutes later, a magnificent carriage arrives. It's Jen's great aunt, Miss Ellen, one of the old ladies of Maplehurst. She's elegant and grand, all in black and looking like she stepped out of an 1840s bandbox. And she asks if she could just borrow Jen for the afternoon. Anne understands that this is not a request. Anne is feeling disconsolate about the whole thing. And the worst part is she knows that she could like this family if they'd let her. Rebecca Dew tells Anne to keep her chin up, and she drops a stray morsel of advice Anne's way. The ladies of Maplehurst love to talk about their ancestors, especially their fine father, Captain Abraham Pringle. Anne and Rebecca Dew are both shocked when, at the end of October, the old ladies of Maplehurst issue Anne an invitation to supper. Anne is determined to make a good impression and understands that this is her chance to turn the tide. Rebecca Dew is sure that the Pringle matriarchs have some sinister plan for Anne. And in fact, the dinner is somewhat unremarkable. Anne observed that Miss Ellen did most of the talking, but that the diminutive Miss Sarah seemed to be pulling the strings, often feigning deafness when Anne spoke. Anne walks away thinking that the ladies live alone in a beautiful mansion surrounded by history and Pringle ancestors and memory, but nothing new and present and alive. For someone who's thinking about her own upcoming marriage and her home of dreams, the loneliness of this great house makes a lasting impression on Anne. 
Things continued to disintegrate with the Pringles, leading to the production of Mary Queen of Scots that the School Dramatics Club puts on. Jen Pringle is cast as Mary, although Anne suspects that another student, Sophie Sinclair, might be even better. But Anne capitulates to Jen's casting for strategic reasons, not just to please the Pringles and ensure their participation in the show, but also because Catherine Brooke wants Jen in the role. On the day of the show, Jen is not in school, and word later comes that she has tonsillitis and cannot perform. Catherine tells Anne that the club will have to postpone the show, but Anne, who is certain that Jen does not have tonsillitis, and who is also certain that this is yet another Pringle prank, Anne staunchly refuses. Unbeknownst to the Pringles, Anne has been coaching Sophie Sinclair in the role. Not because Anne thought Jen would pull a stunt like this, rather, Anne was encouraging Sophie, who was heartbroken when she wasn't cast and couldn't afford the drama club dues. The show goes on with Sophie as Mary Queen of Scots, and it's a roaring success. Jen Pringle gets her comeuppance, and some years down the line, Sophie Sinclair winds up becoming a celebrated actress in the United States. While Anne may have won that event, the feud has now turned to open warfare. Anne assigned an essay. Jen inserted into hers a pointed, obvious insult toward Anne, one that was impossible for Anne to ignore. So Anne sends her home, telling her that she must apologize before she can return to school. And Anne knows that this is a line that she has crossed. She's fairly certain that the Pringles will demand that Jen return, and the school board will back them up, saying that Anne will either have to let Jen back or resign from her post. Anne doesn't know this for sure, but she's pretty convinced that that's how it's going to play out, and she's readying herself to return to Green Gables in defeat. Just as Anne is sure there is no hope, there comes a surprise turn of events. In early December, Anne is invited out to visit one of her students' families. While there, she comes across an old sea journal of Old Uncle Andy, detailing his journeys with the famous and adored Captain Abraham Pringle. The journal is full of praise for Captain Abraham. Uncle Andy was undoubtedly his biggest fan. But Uncle Andy was not impressed by Captain Abraham's brother, Captain Myram Pringle. Andy relates a story in his diary of Myram Pringle, telling him a tale of how he and his crew survived after their ship sank by eating the body of a crewman who had killed himself. Andy notes that Myram seemed to think it all a good joke. Anne asks if her student's family minds if she keeps the diary, and in the spirit of goodwill, she decides she'll send it to the Pringle matriarchs. Anne clearly wrestles with her conscience here. If she were friendly with the Pringles, she'd send them the diary in a heartbeat, thinking they might appreciate all the glowing accounts of Abraham Pringle's leadership at sea. But she doesn't want to do something nice for them, of course. She thinks, why should she try to please them or cater to their absurd pride, which was great enough now without any more food? They had set themselves to drive her out of the school and they were succeeding. She wrestles with her morals all night, seesawing back and forth about it. Finally, she determines to send it, thinking she wouldn't be petty. Anne had a horror of being petty like the pies. Which, to readers, is a little funny considering how many years she kept punishing Gilbert for his mistakes. So, petty is as petty does. I Yeah, I think Anne is well acquainted with petty. <laughs> She's grown. She's matured. That's true. So, Anne sends off the diary with a little note. That very evening... Who should arrive at Windy Poplar's unannounced but Miss Ellen and Miss Sarah? Miss Sarah has not left Maplehurst in 10 years. Miss Ellen was in such a state her bonnet was slightly askew. The ladies have come to capitulate. They thought that Anne was threatening them with exposing Myram Pringle's supposed cannibalism. They avow it was just a tall tale to get a rise out of Andy. But even so, they don't want anyone to hear of it, especially Mrs. Stanton, who is writing a history of Summerside. 
Anne quickly explained she was doing nothing of the sort. She just thought they'd like all the details about Captain Abraham, and she had no intention of repeating that story about Myram. She reassures them of her good intentions, and the Pringle ladies apologize for being so very terrible to her. They promise that everyone will behave themselves going forward. Anne is quick to forgive them all, accepting all apologies, including the one Jen meekly makes before the entire school. The whole of Summerside understands that somehow Anne has won. But true to her word, Anne never breathes a hint of how she did it. And while she always has this little piece of info in her back pocket should she need it, it quickly becomes not necessary at all. Once they stop punishing Anne, the Pringles like her. Anne is likable. And just as she suspected, once they aren't making her life miserable, Anne is able to like many of the Pringles as well. In fact, she and Jen become good friends. Hopefully the Pringle clan has also learned a thing or two about pulling this kind of stunt with new people. I doubt it. (laughs) I doubt it. They seem like they get all their power from closing ranks and Mm. ostracizing outsiders. Yes. If they stopped doing that, they wouldn't be as powerful and influential as they are. So I think this is just part of the Pringle MO, to be honest. (laughs) Right. And one this time. This time. I think one of the things I like best about this Pringle story is how Anne is actually not being deliberately conniving or clever at all. It's her natural goodness and upright morals that bring about both her her victories over the Pringles. You know what this kind of reminds me of? This reminds me of the scene in Anne of Avonlea with the guy who was going to paint the advertisements on his fence, but then she found out that he was actually involved in shady electioneering. Yes. And, right. Judson and Parker. He, Judson Parker. That's right. And Judson Parker thought, oh, no, Anne is going to blackmail me with this. She wasn't. It was just like her own natural goodness and morals that made him sort of reconsider and, you know, ultimately decide to take down the fence paintings. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And in the matter of the play, Anne tutored Sophie out of the goodness of her heart because the teacher and her recognized a student determined to learn. Anne gave up her own afternoons to help Sophie with no expectation of that hard work being seen by anyone else. It wasn't a backup plan. It was the right thing to do. It did end up paying off for Anne, though, and that's because kindness is never wasted, even if you can't see where it's going to end up. And that's the same with the diary. Anne's not thinking of threatening the Pringles with it. She never thought of it as anything but a kind gesture. In fact, she's hard on herself for not immediately wanting to send it, for relishing a tiny bit of private spite against the Pringles by holding the diary back. She knows that if it had been anyone else, she would have instantly wanted to share the diary. No, she's too good. She is, right? And in the moment of the Pringle lady's capitulation, Anne clarifies and reassures. She's horrified they think she's threatening them. She does not seize the moment to wring concessions out of them, but her heartfelt reassurance melts the Pringles, and they are suddenly not capitulating to someone with harmful information, but apologizing to a sweet person who is really only trying to be nice. Anne was being clever by working around the Pringles in the case of the play and in recognizing the importance of the diary, but she wasn't being underhanded in either of those moments. She was both angelically good and dazzlingly clever. Now let's talk about another family with some crazy dynamics. This time, we're only looking at one nuclear family, the Taylor family. The primary problem in this group is the father, Cyrus Taylor. Now, there's a lot of interesting names in this family, so I think we need a moment to explain who everyone is. Cyrus Taylor is the patriarch. He's married to Mrs. Taylor, first name unknown. Their children are Esme, Trix, which I think we can assume is short for Beatrix, and their son, Pringle. 
Pringle is the youngest son and likely his first name is his mother's maiden name. You know, it's still a common tradition in some places for sons to take their mother's maiden names as a first name. And in a small town like Summerside where the Pringles run the show, it would definitely make sense to draw a clear line to that family connection. Esme Taylor, the oldest daughter, is dating Dr. Lennox Carter. So here we have Cyrus, his wife, Esme, Trix, Pringle, and Lennox Carter. And I swear to you, Reagan, this group sounds for all the world like a first grade class at a Silver Lake Elementary School. Oh, absolutely. All very hipster baby names. Yep. <laughs> well, Trix Taylor invites Anne to dinner at the Taylor home to help make a high stakes dinner go more smoothly. Esme Taylor is being courted by the very proper Dr. Lennox Carter. Dr. Lennox Carter is a professor at Redmond. And he is coming all the way from Nova Scotia to visit his family and have dinner with the Taylors. Esme hopes that's because a proposal is forthcoming. The major issue is that the father, Cyrus, has a, quote, bad habit of going into sulks for very minor reasons, which often devolves into a silent treatment so intense that it paralyzes the entire family. Trix and Esme are worried that Cyrus will be in one of those moods when Dr. Carter comes to visit and that will scare him away from Esme. We learn from Trix that in the past, her father has thrown fits for things like not being able to find his nightshirt and Mrs. Taylor choosing red drapes rather than mulberry-colored ones. Ugh. Anne advises that if the family would just stand up to him, he would be less inclined to throw sulks, or perhaps they should just talk normally and ignore him until he acts like, you know, a reasonable person. Good advice. But Trix says there's something so scary about his angry silences that the entire family is just held hostage by them. When Anne arrives at dinner, she can immediately tell that things are not going to go well. There is a definite chill in the air. Everyone is talking in whispers and creeping around silently. Trix confides that her dad lost a game of checkers in the morning and then has been basically pissy all day, refusing to let Esme look in the mirror, throwing out the flowers on the table, not letting Mrs. Taylor put on her garnet earrings. I mean, this man. Well, I mean, he did lose a game of checkers, Reagan. How do you expect him to behave? Is he seven? He's ridiculous. At first, Anne thinks she'll just be able to cover the silence with chatter. She's never at a loss for words. But there's something about Cyrus Taylor glowering malevolently at the table that just stuns even Anne into silence. Anne thinks, it was curious the effect one sulky, stubborn man had on you. Anne couldn't have believed it possible. And there was no doubt that he was really quite happy in the knowledge that he had made everybody at his table horribly uncomfortable. The tension eventually becomes so great that it starts to break. As difficult as Cyrus Taylor is being in this moment, Anne is struck by the imp of the perverse. She starts wondering what would happen if she wrapped his knuckles, made him stand in the corner like a naughty child. She imagines herself smashing a vase, doing anything to get his attention and make him speak. Finally, Anne can't take it anymore. She turns to Dr. Carter and says, perhaps you would be surprised to hear, Dr. Carter, that Mr. Taylor went deaf very suddenly last week. And all of a sudden, we see a spark of that adolescent Anne, the young girl who pushed back on social boundaries and called out bad behavior. Anne has worded her question very carefully, not outright lying, but still making an utterly outrageous statement. Anne's little salvo works magic here, empowering Mr. Taylor's children. 
Trix and Pringle, who are equally annoyed with their father, to carry on in the mischief that Anne started. Now the comedy ratchets up, as Trix and Pringle take the jokes about ten steps further than Anne could ever have dreamed. What do you think, Dr. Carter, of a man who makes his family live on fruit and eggs? Nothing but fruit and eggs just for a fad, asks Pringle impishly. What would you think of a husband who bit his wife when she put up curtains he didn't like? Deliberately bit her? is Trix's next question. The two of them are unstoppable. Trix asks what Dr. Carter would think of a man who cut up his wife's dress because he didn't like it, and Pringle wonders what Dr. Carter would think of a man who gave his wife galoshes for Christmas but wouldn't let her have a dog. The accusations grow ever more outrageous, and I found myself hoping that these were made-up examples and not real things that Cyrus Taylor had actually done. Pringle and Trix ask Dr. Carter what he would think of a man who would throw a roast at a maid if it wasn't cooked properly, who would pasture his cow in the graveyard, who would let his aunt go to the poorhouse, who would attend his father's funeral and overalls, and who believed that the earth was flat. Some of these have to be made up, right? <laughs> because I'm confused because Anne's comment about going deaf was utterly made up, but Trix and Pringle seem to be using this as a sort of airing of the grievances rather than naming random silly hypotheticals. Well, I think we find in the aftermath that some of these things were entirely made up, like the diet, the biting, the cutting up of the dress, not allowing a dog. But some are true. The galoshes, the freaking out over curtains, say, for instance, the entirely made up ones, although invented, do speak a bit to the way the family feels about Cyrus, I think. I mean, maybe he never cut up a dress, but the family is definitely afraid to wear things he doesn't like. Maybe he didn't bite his wife, but he did throw a hissy fit over the curtains. Maybe he never expressly forbid the dog, but I bet his wife doesn't feel like she could insist on one if he didn't want one. I bet that's exactly right, Reagan. So... Here we are with Trix and Pringle having this really like cathartic moment, right? Calling their dad out on his bad behavior, probably for the first time ever, while Cyrus Taylor is growing angrier and angrier by the moment. And they're very clever, right? Because either Cyrus has to speak up and defend himself, or he has to let them keep saying outrageous things about him. Yes. This is very clever because they've really put him in kind of a no-win situation. Mm -hmm. Either he lets them keep going, getting weirder and weirder and more and more outrageous, or he breaks his silence. And so he has to choose, right? What's more important to him? Is it more important for him to carry on with this ridiculous sulk, or is it more important for him to correct the record? But he won't give in on that silent treatment. At this point, Mrs. Taylor is crying. I can only imagine how this poor woman's sense of self is shattered from being married to this guy. And poor Esme, who had so hoped that this dinner would go well, that Dr. Carter would love her family and propose to her, is now sitting there, quote, quite calm with despair. It's a really powerful moment for the Taylor family, but it is terrible timing for Esme and her love life. Finally, Esme speaks up. What? She asks quietly. Would you think of a man who spent the whole day hunting for the kittens of a poor cat who had been shot because he couldn't bear to think of them starving to death? It's a really interesting moment. Esme changes the tenor of the conversation by focusing on something lovely her father has done, as opposed to all the terrible or bizarre things he might have done. Mrs. Taylor decides to get in on the spirit of this and adds, And he can crochet so beautifully. He made the loveliest centerpiece for the parlor table last winter when he was laid up with lumbago. Okay, so... Before, <laughs> what is Lombago? <laughs> Good question. So before we get into Cyrus's response, which is so very him, a moment. Here we have 
this fantastic turning point where the family is finally speaking truth to power and calling Cyrus to task for his bad behavior. Why then do Esme and Mrs. Taylor soften the blow and kind of let him off the hook by naming examples of times he has shown softer qualities? Is this Stockholm Syndrome? (laughs) Have they taken the side of their tormentor? Good question. I do think they realize that Trix and Pringle have gone off the rails entirely and they're trying to halt this runaway train. Sure. And I think it's a combination of both being extremely used to managing Cyrus's feelings. His feelings are absolutely paramount in this family. Mm. And they recognize that like most folks, Cyrus is complicated. And in many ways, we hope he does love them and he is a good dad. We hope. Plus, many of the things Trix and Pringle have said are categorically untrue, so maybe they feel compelled to speak up in defense against the absolute bananas accusations. (laughs) Even though none of that outrageousness would have been necessary if Cyrus had just behaved like a grown adult and managed his own peevishness without taking it out on everyone like a giant toddler. So Cyrus is not defenseless here. He is not speaking purely out of spite and stubbornness. And making everybody uncomfortable and ruining Esme's night. Oh, the whole thing. Anyway, at this point, he's accused of doing crochet now is when cyrus finally explodes (laughs) (laughs) you have gone too far i don't crochet woman is one contemptible doily going to blast a man's reputation forever (laughs) patriarchy at its finest he says he was out of his mind with lumbago oh he didn't know what he was doing he just didn't know what he was crocheting doily for the table (laughs) amazing well yeah and he clearly believes that the worst thing you could say about a man is that he crochets never mind the times that he purportedly threw a roast at the maid or shredded his wife's clothes in his indignation and disgust he pushes his chair back from the dinner table and that vase that Anne had been eyeing earlier smashes into a thousand pieces Cyrus then goes on a rant, refuting that he ever wore overalls to a funeral or sent an aunt to the poorhouse. He swears he doesn't throw roasts and didn't make anyone live on fruit and eggs. So what do you think, Reagan? Do you believe him? Well, he might not have ever done those things, but I bet his family feels like he easily could have. Yes. I mean, could I see Cyrus throwing a roast if it was overdone? Yes. Yes, I could. Anyone who throws the kind of tantrums that Cyrus throws would be the kind of person who would also throw a roast if it was overdone. So at some point during this rant, Cyrus's eye catches Anne's and he sees the humor in the moment. He realizes that he's been the butt of the joke and quite deservedly so. Cyrus says something vaguely like an apology to Dr. Carter, Esme, and his wife. Nothing, of course, for and tricks or Pringle. <laughs> and the dinner continues amicably. Yeah, he calls his terrible silences a bad habit. Like, it's the equivalent to forgetting to put the toilet seat down. Way to gaslight everyone there, Cyrus. Oh, I know. Yes, the, the bad habit I have where I just don't talk to anyone in my family and make them all feel terrible. You know what, though? This is an interesting example of how people with less power can effectively speak to people in power. Clever Anne understands that outright accusing someone like Cyrus Taylor of bad behavior isn't going to get anywhere. So when she makes the comment about him being deaf, she's really just drawing attention to the incivility and arrogance of making the whole family sit in silence at the table because the most powerful person in the room is in a bad mood. Anne also isn't a member of this family. She's an outsider, and she doesn't really have the ability 
ability to tell Cyrus to his face that he's being a bully, but she can say something a little silly to make it plain that she sees Cyrus's behavior as so rude that the only possible excuse for it would be if he were deaf. Trix and Pringle, the long-suffering family members, see what Anne is doing and they use the same tactic to get a little of their own power back. It's certainly not the most direct way to handle this situation, but given the power imbalances at play here, it's an artful way to do it, and it was effective in this situation. Two weeks later, Esme and Dr. Carter announced their engagement, so I guess he decided he could deal with the Taylor family after all, or at least rescue Esme from them. We also learned that Trix had told Cyrus about her own engagement that she had kept hidden, justifiably worried that he might act the way he did at dinner, and that he accepted it in good grace. Trix speculated, though, that Cyrus couldn't go into a sulking spell so soon after the last one. Ugh. This guy. Clearly, he's not actually changing for the good. Just apologize for this one time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a right now kind of fix. Yep. You know, we may as well just call this episode Anne and the Cranks, because next up, we have someone else who is irascible, verging on mean. And that means Catherine Brooke. Catherine is the assistant principal of Summerside High, and Anne suspects that Catherine hoped to move up to the principalship herself and is a bit miffed that Anne got it. Side note, how do we think Anne got this job? She must give a hell of an interview having beat out both a well-established teacher and a Pringle cousin, at least, to this job. I don't know about the cousin, but I think in Catherine's case, the fact that Anne has a BA is a big deal in her hiring because Catherine doesn't, despite all the years of experience she has at the school. Okay, my theory is that it could be that Anne gives a hell of an interview. I mean, that certainly sounds plausible, but I bet she had some killer letters of recommendation from her professors at Redmond. You know that yeah. Anne is like a dream student. And so, you know, she also had some sterling letters of recommendation from some very prestigious people. And that was probably a big point in her favor. Ooh, good point. Because we don't get deep into Anne's academics mm. in Anne of the Island, but you know, I mean, all the honors she takes, you know what kind of student she is. Yes. And you're probably right. At any rate, Anne guesses that Catherine is about 28, although she looks 35 because she dresses so drably and matronly. And you know how Anne feels about fashionable clothes. For comparison, Anne is about 21 or 22 when she starts at Summerside. Catherine is a good teacher, very strict though, and very sarcastic. Apparently, the inspector has called Catherine one of the best teachers in the Maritimes, so she is doing something right. Catherine definitely keeps order through fear, as opposed to Anne, who wants her students to love her. Catherine doesn't seem to have any friends and lives in a gloomy, grubby boarding house. Rebecca Dew reports that no one can make friends with her. The widows have invited her to supper several times, but she has never come. And despite being rumored to be quite clever with skills like singing and reciting, Catherine has ungraciously turned down any invitations to do so. Any attempts of Anne's to connect with Catherine are rebuffed harshly. Anne feels like Catherine is always thinking horrid things about her when they pass. And when Anne observes that Catherine spells her name with a K instead of a C, and that Anne finds the K spelling so much more alluring, the very next note from Catherine is signed, Catherine with a C. Talk about petty. Catherine is working extremely hard to defend herself against Anne's charm and whimsy. And you know that takes serious effort. But Anne's intuition about people is rarely wrong. And intuition is often just being so quick to put things together that it, that it feels like gut instinct. But here, it's proof of Anne's deep empathy and ability to understand others. Mm. 
Despite all of Catherine's extremely off-putting behavior and attitude, Anne feels like there is something more. She tells Gilbert, I really would give up trying to be friends with her if I hadn't a queer, unaccountable feeling that under all her brusqueness and aloofness, she's actually starved for companionship. So the problem of Catherine gets backburnered during all of the Pringle nonsense in her first year. Not as important to deal with as the Pringle situation. But once Anne starts her second year in Summerside, she is ready to tackle the issue of Catherine head on. And not just because it will make Anne's life easier to have a co-worker who is more pleasant and agreeable to work with, but because Anne's heart is attuned to the lonely and friendless and she can't help but want to alleviate that pain where she can. Truly, this book is such a good example of how Anne's dazzling cleverness and angelic goodness work together. She could easily use her people skills and interpersonal intelligence in manipulative or self-serving ways, but Anne's morals and values drive her to use that power to connect and help others. Anyway. As the winter holidays start to approach in Anne's second year, she decides the best way to break through to Catherine is to invite her to spend Christmas at Green Gables. Anne has made zero progress with Catherine thus far and is hoping that getting Catherine to Green Gables will thaw her enough that Anne can connect with her. Rebecca Dew warns her that Anne will spoil her holidays, saying that Catherine would go snubbing the angels that one, that is, if she ever condescended to enter heaven. And worst of it, she is proud of her bad manners, thinks it shows her strength of mind, no doubt. I think it's so interesting that Anne is going like from zero to 60 here from like no friendship with Catherine. Catherine is incredibly rude to her and like really resistant to any kind of overtures of friendship to like, please come to my family home for several weeks at Christmas. That's so intimate. That's a leap. It is, but I think she realizes she has to do something big because Mm. she spent the last year doing the more standard, like being nice to her in the staff room and inviting her for small things. I imagine that Catherine is doing nothing but shutting down any of Anne's smaller attempts to be kind. She decides this is the moment. Go big or go home. Right, right. Anne says to Rebecca Dew, My brain agrees with every word you say, but my heart simply won't. I feel, in spite of everything, that Catherine Brooke is only a shy, unhappy girl under her disagreeable rind. Rebecca Dew is sure that Catherine will turn Anne down, noting that when the widows invited her to Christmas dinner one year, Catherine said, if there's anything I hate, it's the word Christmas. But Anne has an intuitive feeling that Catherine will accept, telling Rebecca Dew, I've had a feeling for some time that Catherine Brooke is almost crazy with loneliness under her bitter outside and that my invitation will come pat to this psychological moment. Rebecca Dew admits that Anne can wrap people around her finger, but thinks she'll regret taking, quote, that iceberg and nutmeg grater combined home with you for Christmas. Oh, my God. (laughs) What a great description. Rebecca Dew might not be a poet, but she certainly has a knack for hitting a description on the nose. Wow. When Anne arrives at the miserable boarding house run by the equally sour Mrs. Dennis, her determination to get Catherine to Green Gables intensifies. It's really awful there. We know that Anne is sensitive to her surroundings and understands that beautiful spaces make it easier to feel happy. And therefore, miserable spaces just make you feel more miserable. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Dennis clearly hates Catherine, mentioning offhand to Anne, a total stranger, that she has just told Catherine something very unkind that someone else said about her. Yeah, what is wrong with this woman? I know. Anne stands up for Catherine, but Mrs. Dennis just continues bad-mouthing her, saying that Catherine's angry tonight because she had just asked Mrs. Dennis if she could have a dog, and Mrs. Dennis said no. 
And clearly that no is out of spite, because as soon as Anne pleads with her on Catherine's behalf, Mrs. Dennis relents, admitting that wanting a dog for companionship is the first human thing she's noticed about Catherine, and that Mrs. Dennis was feeling contrary because Catherine was so sharp and sarcastic mm. when she asked. So this is definitely a huge overstep on Anne's part, but we're going to let that go for now. There's kind of a delicious trope here about that person who's so prickly and hard to love, but they love their dog. That's a a good character trait, right? That's how you know that someone is really a marshmallow inside because they love their dog, even if they're hard on the outside. I think that's a good point. Anne heads on up to see Catherine, who is indeed in a bad mood, just pointing for Anne to sit in an uncomfortable chair. I mean, do we think Catherine has any comfortable chairs? I think that's also true. Anne tries her charm and whimsy at first, imploring Catherine to look at the sunset with her. But even Anne's positive spirit is rankled by Catherine's insulting and contemptuous manner. Anne thinks to herself, do you ever say anything pleasant? So Anne starts being more direct. Finally, she tells Catherine that she's not making her feel very welcome. And Catherine agrees, pointing out that this room is too awful to be welcoming. Well, at least they agree on that. Anne gets right to the point and tells Catherine that she has come to ask if Catherine would spend Christmas at Green Gables with her. Anne braces herself for a sarcastic retort, but Catherine pauses and then asks why Anne is inviting her. It isn't because you like me. Even you couldn't pretend that. And since charm and sweetness seem to be laughingly ineffective with Catherine, Anne goes to direct honesty, saying she can't bear to think of anyone spending Christmas in a place like this boarding house. Catherine responds with sarcasm that she's not a figure of charity just yet. Anne is now at the end of her rope. She knows that Catherine is lonely and miserable, and yet here she is swatting away kindness like a feral cat. Mm. So Anne gets up, looks Catherine right in the eye and says, Catherine Brooke, whether you know it or not, what you want is a good spanking. That must have felt like a relief to Anne. And Catherine says as much. But somehow, her level of defensiveness has come down a notch. Anne and Catherine debate a little bit about whether the invite is charity. Anne clarifies it's not charity. Really, it's empathy. And says, I am sorry for you because you've shut out life. And now life is shutting you out. Stop it, Catherine. Open your doors to life and life will come in. Hmm. Catherine dismisses this as a cliche. But she's starting to open up a tiny bit because when Anne demands an answer, Catherine asks what Anne would really think if Catherine said yes. And Anne says, I'd say you were showing the first faint glimmer of common sense I'd ever detected in you. That finally makes Catherine laugh. She agrees to come and she walks Anne home, even offering to admire the moon with her. That's a great scene. It really is. And showing how Anne, who is so used to using her charm and her sweetness to make people like her, sometimes you just have to be very direct and say exactly what you mean. That, you know, her genius for people is recognizing when to switch tactics. Yeah, absolutely. So off they go to Green Gables. Anne immediately in the Christmas spirit. And though Catherine is quiet, she's a little less spiky. And when they all tumble in the door, enveloped with hugs and the smell of delicious things cooking in Marilla's kitchen, Catherine is swept right up in it, already seeming like she belongs there. After dinner, Anne suggests to Catherine that they take a moonlit snowshoe tramp. The two snowshoe in the magical quiet landscape, just taking in the crisp air and the winter wonder. That's a beautiful passage, by the way. And all of a sudden, Anne realizes that Catherine is crying. Anne asks to help, and in a burst, raw emotion pours out of Catherine. 
she gasps that everything seems so easy and magical for Anne, and she knows that she is too sharp and thorny, but doesn't know how not to be. Catherine wails, I've forgotten how to live. Not that I ever knew how. I'm like a creature caught in a trap. I can never get out. And it seems to me that somebody is always poking sticks at me through the bars. Catherine confesses all her jealousy and misery, sure that Anne could never understand what it feels like to be alone and unloved. Of course, Anne does know what that's like, and she shares her life before Green Gables. Catherine says that it would have made a difference to have known that, instead of always thinking that Anne just effortlessly got everything she wanted. Catherine tells Anne about her own miserable childhood. Her parents hated each other and never wanted her. Her first memory is someone calling her an ugly child. Her parents died when she was seven, and she went to live with an uncle's family who didn't want her either and constantly reminded her that she was living on their charity. She convinced her uncle to put her through Queens, which he only did with the condition that she pay him back. She's been paying off that debt ever since she started working at Summerside, hence why she could only afford that terrible boarding house. She's just now finished paying him back and is free, but she knows that in the meantime, her misery has made her angry and bitter. All those years of being snubbed and insulted have left her sure that everyone is laughing at her and mocking her. She's made the best defense as a good offense into a fine art, but now she doesn't know how to stop. She can't see anything hopeful at all for her future, saying, Does life ever frighten you with its blankness, its swarms of cold, uninteresting people? Anne listens and commiserates and points out the flaws in Catherine's negative thinking, and Anne celebrates that they can become friends now. It's easy to see that Catherine is a mirror version of Anne. Catherine didn't have Anne's imagination to escape into when her home life was awful, and she didn't have Marilla, Matthew, and Diana to love her and accept her and give her a place to feel at home. Anne calls Catherine directly on how she has pushed everyone away and made her own life so much more lonely than it had to be. She tells Catherine that underneath all her prickles, she is a person worth getting to know. And with that, Catherine is on her way to healing. And Green Gables helps. Marilla and Mrs. Lind, Davy and Dora and Gilbert will love anyone Anne loves, so they don't even hesitate to open their arms to Catherine. The beauty of the natural world also works its wonders. As we've discussed before, Maud and many of the other intellectuals at the time embraced being close to nature as a form of pure spirituality. And Avonlea is a beautiful place to put that into practice for Catherine. Anne pushes Catherine socially. She persuades her to recite at a concert in the social hall one evening and even go to the party afterwards. Catherine is pessimistic, sure that no one will ask her to dance and that she'll slide back into her sarcastic ways, but Anne convinces her to try and suggests she'll feel a little more confident if she feels beautiful. And she tries out a new hairstyle on Catherine and encourages her to wear more flattering clothes and to remember that she's already changed in the last week. She just has to let others see it. And sure enough, Catherine has a wonderful time. Her recitation captivates the audience, and she dances with many partners, laughing for real with no bitterness, and comes back to Green Gables where her new puppy from Anne is curled up snug and asleep. What kind of puppy do you think that Anne got her? In my head, it's always a golden retriever puppy because that's what people get in commercials when somebody surprises them with a puppy at Christmas, right? I picture a cocker spaniel like Lady from Lady and the Tramp, but probably for the same reason because that was like a Christmas present dog too. After that, Catherine and Anne are firm friends, and Anne shares with Gilbert that it's made a huge difference at school to really be able to work together with her. Shocking, right? 
Anne helps the changes stick for Catherine, encouraging her to find a nice place to live and join the choir and other social events to dress in clothes she actually likes. It turns out that Catherine doesn't love teaching. She loves to travel. And so at the end of the year, she decides to do a secretarial course at Redmond. I guess it's not a BA program, but maybe like a certificate program. Anne is sorry to see her leave the school, but she wants Catherine to finally live a life that she loves for herself. And at the end of the book, we hear that Catherine has gotten a job as a secretary to a globe-trotting MP, and now will have the chance to see all the wonders of the world that she has been dreaming about. I have to say, Reagan, one thing I love about Anne as a friend is that even once Anne has worked her magic on Catherine, it's always in service of bringing Catherine happiness on Catherine's terms. Anne doesn't try to convince her to have the kind of life that has brought happiness for Anne. You know, she's engaged to be married. She's looking forward to her home of dreams and motherhood and life in a small town. When Catherine says she never wanted to be married, that's that. Anne takes her at face value. When Catherine takes the job with the globetrotting MP, Anne understands it's a perfect fit for her friend. Anne says the MP is, quote, a person who would say, let's go to Egypt, just as one would say, let's go to Charlottetown and go. That life will just suit Catherine. Anne is a great friend, and Catherine is another wonderful example that Maude has given us of the different paths for women at that time, beyond just marriage and children. The last subject of this exploration of the different ways to manage stubborn or grumpy people is Rebecca Dew. Oh, Rebecca Dew. Rebecca Dew must always be referred to as such, as Anne declares she cannot separate those two names for the life of her. She is the housekeeper at Windy Poplar's, although she is some very, very distant relation of Aunt Kate's late husband. Rebecca Dew is our Summerside insider throughout the book, and she's certainly a force of personality. Anne doesn't have to manage Rebecca Dew, but she does witness the ways in which the widows manage Rebecca Dew. From the beginning of the book, Mrs. Braddock tells Anne that it is Rebecca Dew that rules the roost at Windy Poplar's and that it will be her decision if they take Anne as a boarder. She warns Anne not to praise the cat Dusty Miller because Rebecca Dew hates him. And that seems to be the popular belief of the power structure at Windy Poplar's amongst the residents of Summerside. And Rebecca Dew certainly believes that too. But Anne immediately observes that the dynamics are actually far more convoluted than that. Upon meeting Anne, the widows consult with Rebecca Dew right in front of Anne saying, they don't think they can take Anne as a boarder. They are afraid it will be too much work for her. Rebecca Dew immediately refutes that and declares that they should take Anne. But of course, it's your house. And that is the template for pretty much any major decision that needs to be made in the home. The widows tell Rebecca Dew the opposite of what they want. And then Rebecca Dew refutes any reason they might muster. So the widows capitulate to her. Rebecca Dew thinks she's the final say in all decisions. And the widows have a well-established workaround. Hey, why do we think that Rebecca Dew is so oppositional? Like, why is her default just to, like, do whatever the opposite of what the widows want? I don't know. She seems to very much not want people to tell her what to do. And I think some people are just constitutionally opposed to that. Although you would think then perhaps being a housekeeper is not a great fit for you, if that's the case. But I don't know. On the other hand, she's a woman. And what other choice did she have? Yeah. Yeah, she probably didn't have a ton of options. Well, and that speaks a little bit to one of the things we haven't talked about directly, but certainly shows up as we talk about this. We're talking a lot about how the women in Windy Poplars achieve things and connect with people kind of in a sideways manner for the most part, right? Right. Because they can't do it head on. The one time they can, as in Anne and Catherine Brooke, that's among two peers, right? Both Mm -hmm. young, professional, unmarried women. So maybe Anne can be much more direct with 
Catherine. And Catherine is very clear about throwing a lot of manners out the window. Well, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in the birch path we're going to get to today. But when you are living in a society that has very clear expectations for behavior and that has a lot of social strata and everybody understands that everybody has different levels of power and authority and position, then the way you sort of accomplish things when there are power imbalances and relationships is in this kind of sideways manner. You know, you kind of have to come at it not directly because you can't upset that power balance. Absolutely. Well, if we go back to Rebecca Dew and the Widows, the one time the Widows disregarded their own workaround resulted in Rebecca Dew's feud with the cat. Poor Dusty Miller, this poor beleaguered cat. I know. So a neighbor's dog had showed up with a bedraggled kitten in his mouth and the Widows adopted him immediately without being what they call diplomatic with Rebecca Dew. And Rebecca Dew has never forgiven them or the cat. Over the course of Anne's three years at Windy Poplars, Rebecca Dew's vendetta against the cat just gets worse and worse. She complains about poor Dusty Miller constantly and reports that Dusty Miller is a very nice, purry, comfortable kind of kitty. And Rebecca Dew has been caught assisting him out the door with her foot. It gets so bad, the widows finally have to do something. They tell Anne they're thinking of rehoming him just to get some peace in the house. And one day, Dusty Miller is just gone. When Rebecca Dew returns home from her errands and goes to call him in for the evening, the widows tell her that they have given him to a Mrs. Edmonds, a friend who has been lonely since her daughter moved out. Sneaky. They tell her they know Rebecca Dew hates Dusty Miller. They just want Rebecca to be happy. Wow. They didn't think she would care. Well, guess what? Rebecca Dew is outraged. She rages about how she has cared for him since he was a kitten. She lists all the things she does for him and that Mrs. Edmonds won't take care of him properly. Then she announces she's quitting. She can't believe the widows would do that without considering her feelings at all and that it's just dirt mean to give him away. The widows plead with her to stay and promise to get Dusty Miller back from Mrs. Edmonds. Oh, it's so bonkers. So they bring him home the next day and Rebecca Dew is triumphant, feeling that she is won against the widows and claiming Dusty Miller as her victory prize. Anne is taken in by this at first, but then she catches a twinkle in Aunt Chatty's eye and realizes that Aunt Kate and Aunt Chatty have orchestrated this whole scenario to finally end Rebecca Dew's feud against the cat. I mean, the lengths, the lengths. Exactly. Rebecca Dew must be some housekeeper for the widows to do this whole convoluted balancing act with her. I swear. Yeah, she must be the best cook, right? (laughs) I think she is supposed to be quite a good cook. So, you know, and she's family. Yeah, yeah. It is an interesting time. Well, now that we've thoroughly discussed the cranks... Let's move on to our birch path. When Reagan and I set out to discuss Anne of Windy Poplars, we were well aware that this is not everyone's favorite Anne book, but we did want to do it justice. And you know what? I do think that the more we discuss the book, the more I appreciate it. So I'm really hopeful that our listeners are having a similar experience. One of the things that we realized in analyzing this text is that many of the little vignettes that make up this book are short little comedies of manners. A comedy of manners is a much beloved literary genre, particularly for fans of like drama and British literature, TV, and film. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that today. Just to get a definition out there, 
A comedy of manners is a genre of comedy that makes fun of a particular society or group by using their own rules against them to satirical effect. So in Wendy Poplar's, the Pringle story is kind of a perfect example of a comedy of manners. Montgomery is satirizing small towns that are ruled by one large family by telling the story of the Pringles who have banded together to shun the new school principal only to find out that the principal holds a trump card that will expose them all to great scandal. So we get all these traditional tropes of a comedy of manners, right? The characters all interact with each other strictly within the bounds of propriety. Everyone is perfectly polite on the outside and does the well-mannered thing. And underneath it all is a satirical critique of how a group can use their social standing to influence a whole community, even to their own detriment. This genre has a very long history, beginning with ancient Greek comedy. The comedies of classical Greece critiqued the sophisticated code of behavior current in fashionable circles of society, where appearances count for more than true moral character. The plots of those comedies usually revolved around intrigues of lust and greed, which were always masked by fine manners and pretentious decorum. And most importantly, the humor itself relied on elegant wit and repartee. So these plays would always feature absurdly complex plots and oftentimes stock characters. For example, often the hero or the smartest character on stage would be like a servant character who had the greatest knowledge and understanding of the vacuous rich people that they served. Oh, that's interesting. They're doing before like there was an upstairs downstairs type comedies. The Greek were doing basically an upstairs downstairs comedy, right? Yes. And upstairs downstairs is very much in this sort of comedies of manners idea. And you know, honestly, I'm not at all an expert in the ancient Greek comedies. So my point of reference here is actually a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. which is the 1966 Stephen Sondheim musical that was made into a really fun movie. And now that I think of it, it might actually be Roman inspired, but it's all the same idea, right? It's all about a bizarrely overcomplicated plot, lots of funny one-liners, zany antics, sex, curses, intrigue, convoluted family histories, and one clever servant in the center of the action. During the English Restoration period, so now we've moved on in time to the later 1600s and into the 1700s, the comedy of manners as a theatrical genre became popular again. These playwrights would have all been familiar with those Greek comedies and they purposefully used that form to inspire their work. And this worked really well because the restoration was a time when the elite observed very strict social rules which were in tension with like the messy reality of life, right? You put those things together and you've got some great theater. Some of the plays most associated with the restoration comedy are The Way of the World by William Congreve, The Bow's Stratagem by George Farquhar, and The Rover by Aphra Ben. And then of course Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing, which we've discussed on the pod before as one of our favorite enemies to lovers stories is a classic comedy of manners from that period. But the French playwright Moliere was actually the guy who really defined this genre. Moliere is famous for plays like The Misanthrope and The School for Wives. So Reagan, I had a chance to see a production of The Misanthrope a few years ago. We have this really great classical theater company close to where I live. It's called A Noise Within. If you are in Southern California, go see plays there. And I'm telling you, that play is 350 years old, but I was crying laughing when I was watching this production. And I mean, it just goes to show people are people and their foibles will always be funny. I I love that. That's one of those amazing things about how much of some of these genres are built on just our common experiences that no matter the time period are still such human experiences. Right. It's just human nature. And I think what makes comedies and manners really funny is having like a strict code of conduct, but also, you know, people are gross. (laughs) And people people, are having affairs or there's like a secret baby or people are blackmailing someone else, but it's all done 
done in this like very refined silly way and it's like that tension is always so funny well i think that just is always the point right which is that you can put all these rules and structures in place but people are always going to try and find a way around them yep (laughs) usually in service of their basis needs yep Very true. Comedies of Manners, again, revived in popularity in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So this was really led by Oscar Wilde, who is famous for a lot of things. But the play Lady Windermere's Fan and The Importance of Being Earnest are probably his most popular comedies of manners. And also, I would say George Bernard Shaw, who wrote Pygmalion. Those plays were just enormously popular, both at their time and honestly, still today. Like, who hasn't seen a production, like a high school production even, or community theater, of the importance of being earnest or my fair lady which of course is based on pygmalion like these plays are part of our cultural history really and they also just perfectly lampoon the aristocratic classes with zany improbable plotting and well-timed bon mots like lady bracknell's famous line from the importance of being earnest to lose one parent mr worthing may be regarded as misfortune to lose both looks like carelessness so good it's still a zinger (laughs) it's still a zinger (laughs) and you know i don't really think that comedies of manners have fallen out of favor since we love a comedy that makes fun of the elites we love seeing the more humble character win. we love witty banter and we love zany plots so there's so many 20th century comedies that fall cleanly into this definition and lots more besides marry comedy of manners with elements of romance mystery and fantasy like i think you could say that like the bridgerton series is a sort of comedy of manners and romance. Gosford Park is comedy of manners and mystery. Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell is like comedy of manners and fantasy, right? Like there's so many ways that this is sort of extrapolated out. And then some more modern examples of comedy of manners are Noel Coward's plays like Blythe Spirit and Private Lives. Certainly La Cage a Folle in all of its incarnation, from the original French play to the American musical to the brilliant movie The Birdcage. And we even see it in sitcoms, right? A lot of British sitcoms use this form but some American sitcoms that we are a little more familiar with, like Frasier and The Nanny and Arrested Development, are all comedies of manners. And even some of my very favorite movies, like Clueless and Troop Beverly Hills, fall into this category. I mean, really, pretty much any time you have a witty, zany comedy where influential, wealthy, or snobbish people are hoist by their own petard, that is coming from the comedy of manners tradition. Oh, that's amazing. I guess I never really thought of it that way. I love a lot of those movies and shows because they really rely on wit and careful plotting and banter. I love that. I just love that kind of like zingy plotting. Yeah, I mean, it's popular for a reason. And, you know, it's also an enduring genre because it's still a really useful way to speak truth to power. You know, you might not be able to convince a conservative politician to support gay rights, but you can tell a hilarious story about the son of a queer couple and the daughter of that conservative politician falling in love and let that tension play out in a way that's going to force some positive character growth. And I think we see that exact dynamic in Anne of Windy Poplars as well. And as we've discussed, as a young woman, an outsider in Summerside, you know, she cannot speak frankly to people like the Pringles or to Mr. Cyrus Taylor, but she can use her cleverness, wit, and her manners to make her point. That was a great birch path, Kelly. I know this is such a fun genre. I think that there is a lot of things. I mean, I think I probably could have listed hundreds and hundreds of other things that are comedy of manners or comedy of manners adjacent. And certainly if you are an Anglophile at all, like get yourself a BritBox subscription and just go to town. You know, so many of their movies and shows kind of fall into this genre as well. 
Is this our watch list for Girls Weekend? Maybe. Yeah. We should really rewatch La Cage Awful. That movie is fabulous. Maybe. Maybe this is the time to do it. So we want to share our puff sleeves. Those are the fun little moments that we didn't get to talk about in the rest of the episode. For me, in thinking about how the widows relate to Rebecca Dew and manage her, <laughs> I have to point out a very funny little joke that's a through line in Anne's letters to Gilbert throughout this book. Early on, Anne tells Gilbert that Aunt Chatty asks Anne if she can wash her face in buttermilk in Anne's bedroom. Anne agrees, and Aunt Chatty explains that she must do this in secret, since Aunt Kate would make fun of her for being frivolous. A little while later, in another letter, Anne tells Gilbert that she happens upon Aunt Kate, hiding in the pantry, also washing her face with buttermilk. Aunt Kate likewise swears Anne to secrecy, since Aunt Chatty would think Aunt Kate was being silly. In yet a later letter, now well into Anne's second year in Summerside, Anne learns that Rebecca Dew also washes her face in buttermilk. <laughs> and Rebecca Dew also makes Anne promise not to tell the widows, since she's sure they would think it was frivolous. There's like this whole circle of buttermilk face washing over at Wendy Poplar's, and no one will speak of it to anyone else. I feel like the contemporary analog is like friends who swear to each other that they, they don't get Botox. <laughs> do they do they keep running out of buttermilk and they eat? Right, who's like, buying all the buttermilk? <laughs> yeah, and then they each kind of assume it was them who used it all up, and oh, so... No. Oh, I did and no, buy no, no. more buttermilk. No, Reagan, I figured it out. The cow. Remember, they have the cow. They have, a and cow. they have a cow <laughs> because Elizabeth keeps coming over for the milk. So they have the cow. They have an endless supply of buttermilk. Oh my gosh, that is very funny. Buttermilk makes sense though, right? Because lactic acid is an exfoliant. Yeah, there's all these like expensive lactic acid serums on the market. Yeah, it's supposed um, to be great for your skin. So yeah, they probably all look amazing. Dewy and fresh. Love it. <laughs> Well, my puffed sleeve is another little comedy of manners moment, which is that early in Anne's time in Summerside, she's doing the rounds of being invited to all her students' homes and various other community members who are welcoming her with the dinner. At one of her first dinners, she is served pumpkin preserves and she loves it. She tells Gilbert it was like eating preserved sunshine. And so mm. she just raved in praise of it. Well, word got out that the new principal loved pumpkin preserves and everyone made sure to have a dish of it, especially for Anne. Had Anne never had pumpkin preserves? Apparently not. Maybe it's not a thing that Marilla ever made. So oh, man. maybe it's a Summerside delicacy. Oh, boy. They're known for their pumpkins. So naturally, Anne becomes sick of it. She shares with Gilbert that she's excited to finally be going to the home of the Hamiltons for dinner because she's sure she will have a dinner free of pumpkin preserves for once because Rebecca Dew drops the intel that the Hamiltons never cared for it. But she waltzes into dinner and there it is waiting for Anne. Mrs. Hamilton saying that she got some from her cousin specifically for Anne because she heard she loves it. Mrs. Hamilton dishes out Anne a huge serving right onto her plate and gives her all the extra to take home. Anne is so thoroughly sick of it by then, she buries the last of the pumpkin preserves in the garden just to be rid of it. Oh, man. Okay, this is a funny little story, which I'm going to share. Something similar to this, maybe not quite to an extent, happened to my sister. Oh, really? Yeah, so... The very first Christmas that she spent with her husband's family instead of with us, she shared with their family that one of our Christmas traditions is that we always have Pillsbury's orange danishes on Christmas morning. Okay. Like they're the kind that like pop in the yeah, can yeah. with the orange, right? Like we always have them between stocking opening and like the big present opening. I don't know. It was just a tradition. I love that. Yeah. It's great. So she shared that with maybe her husband's mom and they all wanted to make May 
welcome. And so every house that she went to in this family over Christmas specifically had orange rolls for May. Three different houses. So oh my every, gosh. every time they went to another sister's house for another brunch or something like this week, they're like, oh, in May, we made orange rolls. Oh, that's too many orange rolls. Right. <laughs> right. She, because I again, really like, just wanted one after my stocking. Yes, exactly. This is a thing that we have only like a few times a year. Like we have it at Christmas and at Easter. Like maybe oh, that's the morning. Hilarious. It was so funny. She was all like, I cannot look another orange roll in the face. She did not bury any in the garden, though. And meanwhile, all these people just think they're being so hospitable and like, welcome to the family. And they were. How lovely, right? Like, what? what nice people. So anyway, every time I read that pumpkin preserve section, it makes me think of my sister. Oh, I love that. Okay, well, inspired by your your sister and going door to door with all the baked goods, my inspired by Anne this week has very little, honestly, to do with anything we talked about today. But I just have to share with the kindred spirits that I started watching <laughs> Junior Bake Off like the junior version of Great British Baking Show. And this is like the most charming dang show ever. Like if you are at all a Great British Baking Show fan, but maybe you were kind of thinking, okay, the format's like a little hackneyed. I get it. We're going to do this. Apparently no one in the United Kingdom knows how to make brownies. It's very strange. You know, if that was kind of your response to the last season, this is so charming and such a breath of fresh air. The kids are all so I mean, they're amazing bakers for their ages, right? But like their bakes are not professional looking. Like it looks like children are baking. It's not this kind of thing where it's like edited to look like they're all these like amazing, you know, producing store-bought quality bakes or anything like that. Oh, Um, I love that because it feels achievable, right? It feels achievable. Yeah. All their stuff is like a little bit of a hot mess. Yeah. Because they're like children, right? Yeah. They're all like, I think the youngest ones are maybe around nine or 10 and the oldest ones are like 13. Adolescent age where they are totally capable capable but just don't have the skills fully developed yet and then Paul Hollywood who is a flinty grumpy host in the regular version is so lovely to them and so I was like watching this one episode where this little boy just messes up his cake entirely like use the wrong kind of flour it's like falling apart and you can just see the look on his face a hope has left his eyes he's sitting down like he's clearly thinking about just quitting the show and Paul looks at him and he says I'd be really disappointed if you gave up right now so sincerely and so lovely Reagan I just started crying and so of course he gets back on the horse and finishes the bake and it's terrible but like they're still you know so encouraging it's really sweet so I love that show definitely go check it out and yeah that's the junior version of the Great British Baking Show amazing I love the Great British Bake Off I have not watched the junior one and I definitely am going to do that now I think that you and your daughter Alice would really like it oh and if you do watch it there's one little boy who looks just like my husband looked like at that age so tell me if you can figure out which one that is yeah that sounds like a perfect watch for the two of us For my Inspired by Anne, okay, just so you guys know, I am not usually someone who goes crazy for pumpkin stuff. Unlike Definitely would not be a pumpkin preserve fan, right? Like pumpkin pie, my least favorite thing. I much prefer the apple or cinnamon flavors that show up in the fall. I'd much rather have that. But I do have to recommend the new Starbucks pumpkin cream iced chai latte. It is so good. It's so so good. good. I love a chai anyway, iced, hot, whatever, but the pumpkin cream is so good with it. It makes it like extra creamy and rich and the pumpkin spices work with the chai spices and the pumpkin works here in a way that it does not work for me in baked goods and coffee. I'm totally obsessed. I have not yet tried it hot, but it's still plenty warm in LA. So the iced ones are really hitting the spot. It's just 
a great fall flavor combo. So if you have one of those and an apple cider donut, that's bliss. I think we're going to have to help ourselves to some of those on our way up to the mountains next weekend for sure. Oh, 100%. Kindred Spirits, thank you so much for spending part of your day with us on this episode of Kindred Spirits Book Club. To keep the conversation going, we hope that you'll join us over on Instagram at kindredspirits.bookclub. Or if you want to say hi over email, you can reach us at kindredspirits.bookclub at gmail.com. Okay, guys, we're still giving away Kindred Spirits Book Club stickers. They feature our logo. They are gorgeous. Truly, they're very, very well made. They're going to look great on your water bottles, your laptop, wherever you slap a sticker. And you can have one for free if you review our show on Apple Podcasts or if you share about us on Instagram or your favorite social media. If you do any of those things, please screenshot it and send the screenshot to us at kindredspirits.bookclub at gmail.com along with your name and address. In return, you will get a logo sticker and our gratitude. Thanks again for listening. Bye, Kindred Spirits. 